Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. We are looking at the Come Follow Me assignment for September 2nd through 8th. This is 1 Corinthians 14 through 16. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I need to give you guys a heads up. I don't even know where my head is at. It's the first full week of school. Like, I don't even know my name. I am just like, it has hit me like a Mack truck. Things are going good. Things are going really good. I love the kids. I love my new coworkers. So it's a great place. I'm happy there. It's just really busy and lots of new information hitting me like all the time. So I'm kind of like drinking from the fire hose. So because of that, I'm very like scatterbrained right now, I feel. So this episode may be kind of all over the place. It may be shorter than normal because I haven't really had time to research quite as much as I normally do. So y'all just bear with me. So let's jump right in. We are talking about the last couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, and this is kind of where Paul's addressing a couple of things that are going on in the church congregation. And we read in the introduction, it says, Paul had previously taught them the fundamental truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. But some members soon began teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul implored them to keep in memory the truths that they had been taught. When we encounter conflicting opinions about gospel truths, it's good to remember that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Listening to the Lord's appointed servants and holding to the simple truths that they repeatedly teach can help us find peace and stand fast in the faith. I thought that was a really interesting introduction, but I really like that quote that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I think sometimes in our modern church, we tend to stir things up Like, I mean, like the ancient church did where they started having some different teachings in there. We tend to stir stuff up, not doctrinally, but just like culturally, that creates some confusion on where we stand on different things. And I think it's good to remember that God is the author of peace. I think what we're seeing here in Corinth is actually a little bit of influence from the Sadducee culture. Um, You know, again, the gospel net catches all different kinds, especially there in the ancient church. And so, of course, there would be some converts from the Sadducees, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And so that would kind of be, I think, maybe where some of this teaching is coming from. All right, so jumping into the first section of Come, Follow Me, this is from 1 Corinthians 14. And this was kind of interesting for me to think about this week. It's, I can seek the gift of prophecy. And to Come, Follow Me ask, have you ever wondered what the gift of prophecy is? Is it the ability to predict the future? Can anyone receive this gift? Or is it just for profits? And I'm like, these are very good questions. These are questions that I have actually wondered. And when someone were to come up to me and talk to me about the gift of prophecy, like, and this is, I don't know, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but like my first mental image comes up of like someone with like a crystal ball. Like the gift of prophecy has always been something to me that's like a little, ooh, kind of out there. You know, I believe in the prophet that leads and guides the church. And I believe that he has the gift of prophecy. 
But I was like, uh, I don't know, not necessarily like, is that something that I engage with on a daily basis? But from my reading this week, I discovered the, you know, all the little times where I'm prompted or all the little times where I am like guided along decisions in my life. That's the gift of prophecy working in my life. And so it made it much more applicable to me this week, I feel, than I previously had felt about the gift of prophecy. So is it the ability to predict the future? Maybe, I guess, in some instances in my life, maybe like here and there I felt that. But really, more for me, I think the gift of prophecy is like a guiding hand, you know, where I'm like, I've got this decision coming up, I have to make a choice, and I appeal to my Heavenly Father for guidance or help or confirmation that I'm making the right choice. And he's like, yes, you take this way and it's going to work out. And like, that's kind of, I guess, how I see the gift of prophecy working in my life. So I think it is for everyone. And in fact, I found an article in the September 1997 Ensign, and this was actually from the visiting teaching message that they had back then, and it's called The Gift of Prophecy. So here's a little bit that the Ensign had to say in September 1997. With the restoration of the gospel, the gift of prophecy has once again become available. President Harold B. Lee described this gift as the gift by which we may have God revealed. With it, living prophets can reveal God's will for his children, and we may receive inspiration for ourselves. Whatsoever they shall speak shall be the will of the Lord. The word prophet comes from a Greek word that means inspired teacher. In this sense, those leaders we sustain as prophets serve as inspired teachers of righteousness. Throughout the ages, prophets have often been inspired to foretell future events, but most often their work has been to foretell to teach true doctrine, to act as witnesses of the Savior, to warn against sin, and to lead the Lord's people by the power of the Spirit. And I love that because that, again, shook my definition of the gift of prophecy. The work to forth tell. I've never heard that word before, but it is spelled F-O-R-T-H-T-E-L-L. Forth tell. So, to teach true doctrine. And I love that application of the spirit of prophecy. And that actually makes sense because when we were talking a couple weeks ago about the spiritual gifts, and you know, I went into gospel topics online and looked at the spiritual gifts, it actually said under the spirit of prophecy that a testimony of Jesus Christ was considered part of the spirit of prophecy. And I was like, how is that part of the spirit of prophecy? A testimony of Jesus Christ, like... I'm having a hard time, you know, consiling this to my woo-woo crystal ball kind of thoughts about the gift of prophecy. But this kind of helps me, you know, that there's prophets who are inspired to foretell future events. But then there's others, and most of the time, where their work is to foretell, which is to tell about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach true doctrine, to act as witnesses of the Savior, to warn against sin, and to lead the Lord's people by the power of the Spirit. That's how I see the gift of prophecy working in my life, Um, to help teach true doctrine, to act as a witness of the Savior to me, and then also to use me to act as a witness of the Savior to others as well. Continuing on with the article in the Ensign, it says, The Lord teaches that prophets are indispensable to the work of the ministry. He declares that whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. The president of the church is the Lord's prophet, seer, and revelator to the world. Helping him in his ministry are apostles, men set apart as prophets, seers, and revelators. 
from Moses. We learn that the gift of prophecy is not restricted, though, to those church leaders only. Would God, he cried, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's from Numbers eleven twenty nine. According to John, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This comes from Revelations 19.10. Through this wonderful gift, we can know that the Savior lives and that he loves us. What a blessing that is, the gift of prophecy. Again, I'm moving on from my preconceived notion of like the crystal ball type stuff to turning this into the gift of prophecy is the knowledge that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and that he loves me gift of prophecy is a huge gift. I'm like, yeah, Paul, you got this. Like, thanks for bringing this to my attention. I do love the spirit of prophecy. This is awesome. Continuing on with the article, it says, it is also by this gift by which we can know the choices we are making are the right ones. Those who receive the gift of the Holy Ghost can receive revelation within the sphere of their responsibility and authority given to them. Which again, perfect. I love it. That is exactly what I was talking about. You know, the spirit of prophecy in my life, again, it's not like, Lexi, you will win a million dollars six months from now. It's much more like, hey, make this choice and this is going to work out for you, right? Um, I also found another quote from M. Russell Ballard that I really like. One of my friends posted this to their Facebook this week, and I was like, oh, this is so applicable to what we're studying. And it's from Elder M. Russell Ballard. He gave it as an address on May 1st, 2015 at BYU Women's Conference. It's in his talk, Women of Dedication, Faith, Determination, and Action. And I'm giving you all that information because y'all are probably going to want to look this up because it is an awesome talk. Just listen to this quote, okay? Once you know the Lord's will, you can then move forward in faith to fulfill your individual purpose. One sister may be inspired to continue her education and attend medical school, allowing her to have significant impact on her patients and to advance medical research. For another sister, inspiration may lead her to forego a scholarship to a prestigious institution and instead begin a family much earlier than has become common in this generation, allowing her to make a significant and eternal impact on her children now. Is it possible for two similarly faithful women to receive such different responses to the same basic questions? Absolutely! What's right for one woman may not be right for the other. That's why it is so important that we should not question each other's choices or the inspiration behind them. I love that. I'm like, can we put that on a billboard? Because that is awesome. That's the spirit of prophecy at work. I can receive revelation for myself. I can make choices for myself. So I don't need people judging those choices, right? I saw this sometimes at BYU when I would tell people that I wanted to go on and get my master's degree in library science. And, you know, it wasn't everyone. I would say 98% of the people I met were like, oh, cool, go get an advanced degree. That's awesome. But, like, there were one or two people that were like, ooh, are you sure you're going to want to have, like, a higher degree than your future husband has? I'm like, who's to say my future husband won't have a master's degree? Uh, Because it's surely not you, dude. Right? And so... uh, I was like, oh, that's just kind of like not a good attitude to have. And I felt like my, my choices in my life and the direction that I felt like I was inspired to go and were kind of being questioned. But I also see this on a daily basis, just on the internet and on different articles and things like that. People questioning, you know, oh, why do those moms stay home with their kids? Like, can you believe those stay-at-home moms? Like, they have it so easy. No. No, they don't. And then there's other people saying, oh, well, look at those moms going to work. Like the working moms, they're just so awful for leaving their children like with somebody else. 
No, no, they aren't. Because they all make their own choices. All right. Yes, we have guidance from church leaders, but at the end of the day, we receive revelation with the spirit of prophecy for our own selves. And so that's why we don't go judging other people. So I wanted to get that out there. I know that was like a whole soapbox that I was not expecting to come out here under the gift of prophecy, but yeah, it came out. So um, that is the gift of prophecy this week in Come Follow Me. I just really, really love that quote about, is it possible for two similarly faithful women to receive such different responses? And the answer is yes, because we have the gift of prophecy. Going back into Come Follow Me, it says, what do you learn about the spiritual gift from 1 Corinthians 14, 3, 31, 39 through 40? So here's what it says. It says, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. So real quick, let's pause. Edification means, you know, we're building someone up. Exhortation. I had to look that up because I kind of like knew what it meant, but it was like I needed it in black and white. And exhortation, if you look it up like Webster's or whatever, it says it's urging someone to do something. So he that has the spirit of prophecy and you're speaking unto men, like in church or whatever, you are doing it to edify, to build their testimony up, to urge them to do something. And I would think that that thing would be to come unto Christ, right? And comfort, which I thought was interesting as well. I'm like, oh, but yeah, I guess that is a part of the gift of prophecies to comfort. So going on into 1 Corinthians 14, 31, for ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. There's that comfort word again. I'm like, man, this is this word comfort is jumping out at me. And again, it's not something that I would normally associate with the spirit of prophecy. And then it can, Paul continues on in 39 and 40 where he says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues and let all things be done decently and in order. But it was going back to that whole thing about comforting that I thought was just so interesting. And I was like, you know, once we truly do have a testimony of Jesus Christ and we know who he is and what he can do for us and what he has done for us, then that's a comfort. And so when we have the spirit of prophecy giving us that testimony, that can be a comfort to us in our lives. That's what I learned from the spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 14. Next question is, what might Paul have meant when he invited Corinthians to covet to prophesy? Well, I went to some different translations, and because that word covet has like a really negative connotation for me. I think it does because of the Ten Commandments and, you know, thou shalt not covet. And for some reason, I feel like it's got kind of like a dishonest kind of connotation in my mind. Um, That just may be me and the way my brain works. I don't know. But so covet kind of had a negative connotation. So I didn't really like the idea to like dishonestly want to prophesy. Like that's kind of how I read that verse. And I was like, I really don't like that. So I went and I looked at some other, other translations of this particular scripture. And my favorite translation or interpretation of it is to desire earnestly to desire earnestly to prophesy. And I was like, that fits what I feel like the rest of this whole scriptures kind of are talking about, to desire earnestly, because that to me sounds honest. And then it also sounds like an inner wanting, I guess. So I honestly inner want to prophesy, meaning I I honestly internally want to strengthen others. I honestly internally want to comfort others. I honestly internally want to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I think Paul meant when he said covet to prophesy, to honestly internally desire to be able to lead others to Jesus Christ. So I'm like, wow, 
I ended up like all the way over here in right field from where I thought I would be when we started talking about the spirit of prophecy. How cool is that? How cool is, are the scriptures and sitting down and actually delving into them and wrapping your mind around concepts that you thought you knew what it meant, but it means something totally different. That's why I love Come Follow Me so much because it kind of blows my mind. Like, you know, these different moments that I have where I'm kind of like discovering, oh, hey, that whole passage that you thought it meant this one thing. No, it means something totally different. So that was an awesome moment for me. All right. Up next. <laughs> so this next section in Come Follow Me has been a um, burr in my backside, is how we say it here in the South. This section is called, Why Did Paul Say Women Should Be Kept Silent in Church? So I, I've mentioned before here on the podcast that growing up, I was always very, you know, female-focused in my study of the gospel, and that caught the attention of some of the young men that were in my Sunday school class and seminary and things like that, and so I often got this scripture quoted to me. And this is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. I would be saying something like, well, and sisters too, or my favorite person in the Book of Mormon is Sariah, or whatever. And I would get this spouted at me. So here's, here's what it says. It says, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Okay. So you can tell, like, I'm really annoyed at these verses. Like, I really do not like these verses. And so, you know, I'd like to dedicate this next section here to all the boys in my seminary class that I grew up with. Like, this section is for you because we're going to talk about what these scriptures mean. And I got a bone to pick. Now, in their defense, like, you can see now as I talk and I'm 37 years old and I... I like to be a know-it-all. I like to know everything. I like to research. I like to be the big brain in the room. And you can imagine 20 years ago, 17-year-old Lexi would maybe not have handled it as well as maybe I do now. I have 20 years of experience of being, you know, a know-it-all. So I think I've managed to tone down the obnoxiousness of that maybe a little bit. But 17-year-old Lexi was a little bit obnoxious about it. So, you know, granted, I was probably obnoxious and I was probably spouting off at the mouth multiple times each seminary lesson. But still, women can talk in church. All right, so let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak. Joseph Smith translation comes in and says, rule. Okay, so if we go into Come Follow Me, Come Follow Me says, This clarification suggests that Paul could have been referring to women who are trying to usurp authority in church meetings. Okay, that definitely could be one interpretation of this, all right? I went into the Enduring Word, which is one of my favorite, you know, non-denominational gospel commentary type things. And I was like, what do they have to say about this? Because it really bothers me. And I will tell you, here in the South, there are churches here that take the Bible literally, and their women are not not allowed to speak in church. So I really wanted to know, I'm like, what is the history behind this scripture? Like, what is it saying? Because not only has it plagued me, like, my teenage years, and obviously left some kind of emotional scar upon me, but also because I'm like, there are other churches that take this literally. So I'm like, I really want to know, like, what is Paul saying? Because we know if we back on up into 1 Corinthians 11.5, he's talking about women praying and praying prophesying in church. So now why would he turn around and say, tell the women to be silent? Like that just doesn't make sense, right? Well, Enduring Word says, 
In the ancient world, just as in some modern cultures, women and men sat in different groups at the church. Among the Christians in Corinth, there seems to have been the problem of women chattering or disrupting the meetings with questions. We're going to talk about the chattering here in a minute. Paul is saying, don't disrupt the meeting, ask your questions at home. Okay, cool. I can deal with that. That, yeah. You know, sometimes we as women, we tend to chatter. The men chatter too. I want to say that. But yeah, we tend to like, we tend to be a little bit more talkative, I guess, than the guys, right? Enduring Word continues. In the Jewish synagogues, men and women sat apart. But if a woman chattered or called out to her husband sitting far off, she would be dealt with severely. The Corinthian church may have adopted the same kind of seating arrangement, but with many women from Gentile backgrounds, they did not know how to conduct themselves at church meetings. Paul is teaching them how. Okay, so you've got Gentile women who are coming from different backgrounds, you know, from like the Greek mythology culture, from the Roman mythology culture, where things are much more loose, and they're mixing together with a Jewish group who is very strict and very structured. And so, you know, you're all sitting down for worship, and I guess the men and women are split apart, and they're sitting up there, and like someone's using the spirit of prophesy to teach in church, and this girl gets up, and she like leans out across her sister that's sitting next to her, and is like, hey, hey, Joe, did you hear what they just said? what they just say, Joe? Can you let, you know, and she's like yelling to her husband. I could see how that would be disrespectful. Maybe it wasn't even that dramatic. Maybe it was something where, like, she would call out and say, hey, I have a question about this, or, you know, trying to get her husband's attention about something. So I could see where there might be, like, a culture clash, and Paul's like, okay, so... Again, as we read in like some of our earlier chapters where it's like for the weakest among us. So for those who are struggling hard to fill the spirit, let's keep our church meetings a quiet spiritual place. Right? We're not yelling out at each other. We're not yelling across, you know, the room to our husbands. We are going to keep it a quiet spiritual place where the spirit can be, right? Another thing I like about these verses is that Paul uses the ancient Greek word laleo. Okay, and laleo has a different connotation than what we would have for speaking in church. Okay, speaking in church would be something about prophecy or prayer, but laleo means to talk, to question, to argue, to chatter. So what Paul is telling them to do, the women, is not to be chattering in church. That kind of actually reminds me of when we get to sacrament meeting and before the sacrament meeting starts, you know, we're all out in the pews and stuff and we're all walking around and greeting our fellow saints and talking. We're really excited to see each other. And a bishopric member may have to come over the pulpit and say, um, brothers and sisters, just a reminder that this is the set chapel and we need to keep our reverent Sunday voices or whatever it is that they say. Good news is, is that they say brothers and sisters. They don't just say sisters. Y'all are all chattering. You need to stop, which is kind of what Paul's doing here. Paul, this is my one beef with you, man. Like, this is my one beef. But it's okay. I understand. I understand what he was saying because we women do tend to get a little chattery, but doesn't mean that we are forbidden from speaking in church. In fact, we are encouraged to speak in church as we read earlier in Corinthians. It just means useless, argumentative, and like, I guess, idle chatter is not necessarily what we need to be doing. We need to be focusing on our Lord and Savior. We need to be focusing on the sacrament. We need to be focusing on the meeting itself, focusing on bringing the Spirit into the meeting. And then that is how we talk at church. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That made me feel a whole lot better than how I had had the scripture thrown at me my whole life, right? So, yes, that is my interpretation there of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. 
Okay, so the next section in Come Follow Me is a little bit more spiritually based and I'm a little bit less ranty about, so that's good. Um, This one is Jesus Christ Gained Victory Over Death. And it's talking about 1 Corinthians 15, um, and Paul kind of, Paul goes on a rant, um, kind of about, you know, if I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my faith is in vain. And he's talking about that. So, Come Follow Me asks in this particular section, take a moment to ponder how your life would be different if you did not believe in the resurrection. How has it blessed you? What blessings will come to you because Jesus Christ was resurrected? And I was thinking, I'm like, you know what? We talked about this, I feel like, in a couple episodes ago. So, I didn't want to go into the same kind of stuff, but there's a really great talk out there. It's called, And There Shall Be No More Death, and it's by Elder Paul V. Johnson in the April 2016 conference. And he's talking about his daughter. He has this beautiful daughter who passed away from cancer, and, you know, he was trying to deal with it as a father. You know, your child dies. She's a mother. She's leaving behind children and a husband. And, you know, why would God do this? And But in the middle of him reasoning all this out, he starts talking about the resurrection and some of the blessings of the resurrection. And I I love the way he phrased it. You know, first of all, to me, one of the biggest blessings of the resurrection is the perfection of our physical bodies. And Paul V. Johnson says, each of us has physical, mental, and emotional limitations and weaknesses. These challenges, some of which seem so intractable now, will eventually be resolved. None of these problems will plague us after we are resurrected. I love that. You know, again, I struggle health stuff. I struggle with mental health stuff. I struggle with limitations and weaknesses on a daily basis. And the knowledge that that will be perfected after the resurrection, to me, is hugely comforting. But now then he goes in to talk about other blessings of the resurrection that I had not considered before. He says, The resurrection of the Savior proves that he is the Son of God and that what he taught is real. He is risen, as he said. There could be no stronger proof of his divinity than him coming forth from the grave with an immortal body. I was like, oh, that's an awesome blessing of the resurrection, that we can believe that Christ is who he says he is, because he said he would do this, and he did. You know, I'm like, that testimony of him, that's a huge blessing of the resurrection as well. Paul V. Johnson continues, The reality of the resurrection of our Savior overwhelms our heartbreak with hope because it comes with the assurance that all the other promises of the gospel are just as real. Promises that are no less miraculous than the resurrection. We know that he has the power to cleanse us from all of our sins. We know that he has taken upon himself all of our infirmities, our pains, and the injustices we have suffered. We know that he is risen from the dead with healing in his wings. We know that he can make us whole no matter what is broken in us. We know that he shall wipe away all tears from our eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. We know that we can be made perfect through Jesus Christ who wrought out this perfect atonement if we will just have faith and follow him. How beautiful is that? You know, he uses the quote, risen from the dead with healing in his wings, which is one of my all-time favorite ways to describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love the imagery of him rising from the dead with healing in his wings. And I love the phrase that he uses too, we know that he can make us whole no matter what is broken in us. You know, what are the things that are broken inside of us? Whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, 
that we can be made whole through the blessing of his resurrection. And that is what the resurrection means to me and that beautiful promise that not only did his promise that he would come back to life come true, but that means that all the other promises that he's made to us, that he can take our sins upon him, that he took our infirmities upon him, all of that comes true as well. And that's what the resurrection means to me. Um, And to kind of go into that... The next section in Come Follow Me talks about how resurrected bodies are different from mortal bodies um, because they're perfect. Yeah, we just read quotes and stuff about it. So um, you can go check out those different, like the Joseph Smith translation of 1 Corinthians 15.35 and things like that. So go check that out. Okay, now I want to go down now to the ideas for family scripture study and family home evening and talk a little bit about one of the sections down there, which is one of my favorite doctrines of the church. And it's the first section down there. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And it says, we learn from verse 29 that the ancient saints participated in baptisms for the dead, just as we do in the church today. And I love that whenever we see these different things that the saints were doing in the ancient church being restored in our modern day church today. So I love that Paul mentions this. Again, it's one of those things I think maybe other churches don't really get. I read in one commentary that there is up to 30 different interpretations as to what this verse could possibly mean. But I think we have the true interpretation, guys. We know what baptisms for the dead are. We know the importance of what they mean for those on the other side. So this was a really awesome verse for me to study this week. I actually went into the section that they kind of suggest. It's it's baptisms for the dead at gospel topics at topics at lds.org. And there's some really good things in there just to point out. It's just some basic standard doctrines about baptisms for the dead. Number one, Jesus Christ taught that baptism is essential to salvation for all who have ever lived on earth. So everybody needs to be baptized. But because we have a gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we have a Father who has made a way where those who have not been baptized in this life or those who have not been baptized but not with the proper authority, those who have never had a chance to hear the gospel, where they can have that chance. You know, and this to me is an, an extremely comforting doctrine because it shows that we don't have a gotcha God. Like our Heavenly Father, our God is not a God that's trying to trip us up and trying to trap us in every little flaw or fault he can. He's not a lawyer trying to sue us to keep us out of heaven. Do you know what I mean? Like he is literally trying to find actually the opposite of that. Every single loophole he can find to bring us to him. And so this is one of the ways that I see him know necessarily that it's a loophole, but if the rule is you have to be baptized to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he's definitely created a way for all those who have never had that opportunity to be able to have the opportunity through us. The Gospel Topics article actually says, because he is a loving God, the Lord does not damn those people who, through no fault of their own, never had the opportunity for baptism. He has therefore authorized baptisms to be performed in proxy for them. A living person, often a descendant who has become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is baptized in behalf of the deceased person. And this work is done by church members and temples throughout the world, and we know this. Now, there are some misunderstandings that happen with baptisms for the dead. And some misunderstandings that happen is that some people think that their ancestors are being baptized into the church against their will. And that is absolutely not true. The validity of the baptism for the dead depends on the deceased person accepting it and choosing to accept and follow the Savior while residing in the spirit world on the other side of the veil. 
in fact, we don't even add the names of the deceased to the general membership of the church. It is totally up to that person as to whether or not they will accept the gospel. And I don't think that they are forced to make that immediate decision. Like, I think the ordinance is there and it's in place and it may take them time to think through the gospel and it may take them time to kind of accept the gospel, but the ordinance has still been done for them. Um, an example of this is I went through and I did some temple work for an aunt of mine who passed away. And it was really interesting when I was going through and doing, you know, the various ordinances for her because she had a very clinical and very, like, calculating, like, mathematical kind of personality. And I could feel her there. Like, as I was going through and, you know, baptisms for the dead and things like that, they're very kind of clinical and, like, just kind of studying things. Like, I could feel, like, that kind of presence there, right? And so I hope that she has accepted it now on the other side. Um, I know at the time that she didn't because she was still studying it out as we were doing the ordinance for her. So I hope that by now that she's accepted it. But it was just a very interesting experience to go through and feel her there and feel her studying it. But knowing that she wasn't immediately accepting it, but I have hope that down the road that she might. So that's what Baptisms for the Dead is all about. It's all about giving hope. Hope to our ancestors who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. Hope to anyone who's never had a chance to hear the gospel, you know, that they are not immediately damned to hell. Like that is the hope that Baptisms for the Dead bring to us. So that's why I love it. It's why it's one of the most comforting points of church doctrine that I see. So um, that's Baptisms for the Dead. And Paul talks about it this week in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And he's talking about like, why is there a resurrection? Why would they be baptized for the dead if there wasn't a resurrection? Because remember the saints in Corinth were all like, hey, there's no resurrection. So he's like, why are you guys baptizing for the dead if there's no resurrection? Like, that's silly. That was what Paul was saying. So anyways, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. Thank you guys for listening. I know it's a little bit shorter than normal, so thank you for putting up with that too. Um, For those of you who wanted shorter episodes, hopefully this will be good for you. So I hope you guys have a good week. I hope you are reading your scriptures and staying close to Christ. I love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.